This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hey, movie lovers. Welcome back for another edition of Anatomy of Movie here at Popcorn Talk. That's right. Grab your London Dry gin. Make your martinis because I've got a simple favor to ask you. So stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Is the suspense killing you? What is this favor, I might ask? Well, it's to enjoy our show. A very simple favor, unlike Blake Lively's simple favor in her movie called The Simple Favor. Of course, for those of you who are joining us for the very first time, welcome. If you're joining us for a second, third, or whatever time, welcome back. For those uninitiated, know that we are not a regular movie review show. We break down the plot, of course, but we also go into various details of behind-the-scenes production. And last but not least, we round out with box office numbers and so forth and speculate on those things. So it's uh, information as well as opinion, if you'd like. Furthermore, because of that, it is very spoiler-filled, and especially with a movie like this, I would suggest to see the movie first before you have us ruin it. Um, But then, of course, once you've seen it, you would get to enjoy us. Mm -hmm. See, it flips. And last but not least, if you want to follow along, we do have our rundown in the description box provided for you. You can get all the little nitty-gritty details so that way you can follow along. Now... Allow me to introduce the rest of the panel, because I can't do it by myself. I wouldn't want to do it by myself. <laughs> we have Marissa Serafini. Hello, everyone. And we have Dimitri Panos. You might be able to do it by yourself, I'm uh, sure. I wouldn't want to. <laughs> and hello, movie fans. How's it going? How's it going, panel? Going quite go. well. So okay. now, the follow-up, we've introduced everybody, but now let's introduce your thoughts of the movie to the fans. Marissa, kick us off. Yes, so I was very excited for this film um, when I first heard it was going to come out. Big fan of Blake Lively, big fan of Anna Kendrick, love Paul Figg, so I knew this this movie was going to be awesome. I mean, when you have a trifecta of awesomeness, it's going to be great. Um, and then I saw the promotions and the trailers for this. I was like, yeah, I'm already on board. So I, for the first time, like, loved it, loved it so much that I saw it the second time. 24 hours later. So I was like, yeah, this movie's great. I loved it. It was fun. It had a good balance of comedy, um, some dark moments too, but also a good thriller type of mystery storyline, which I'm a big fan of mystery as well. I just, it had a lot of things and a lot of factors in it that I really enjoyed. So it's a very fun movie. 
Marcia approves. I do. <laughs> Dimitri. So hard. Yeah, no, you know, this is like the second mystery that we've covered within the past couple of weeks. The first one being Searching. This one, albeit based off of a book, it's still a mystery movie. And it was just diabolically fun. It was very Hitchcockian. It was nice to see Paul Feig sort of steps out of his wheelhouse of just doing uh, female branded comedies, this movie is not without its humor. I found myself laughing uh, to an extent where I almost believed that I was watching a comedy. And it had, and it is a comedy. It's a dark comedy in a sense. Mm -hmm. But it has a lot of Hitchcockian twists and turns and people uh, in it. You know, the regular person trying to figure out this mystery and what's going on and who's cheating on who and, and what's happening. And I, and I really truly believe too that part of why this move, why the movie succeeds and I haven't read the book, but I believe why the movie succeeds is because it will throw various MacGuffins out there or it will even have something in the movie where you figure it out almost instantly, but it doesn't really matter because you've got the rest of this movie happening and going on and various twists and turns that you don't figure out. So if you so if it if it hands something to you on a platter that, that makes you feel smart <laughs> as an audience member, you've got the rest of the movie to go through and it really works. And I think a lot of it is because of the writing, but I think the performances. I think uh yeah. Blake Lively, I think this is one of her best movies. I, I really think yeah. she was fantastic. Uh, and the same as Anna Kendrick. I mean, Anna Kendrick has proven that she could play this kind of innocence and be uh, a little snarky uh, and, and maybe in her way, tad sexy and all. And they both together are the full package. And I think the cast and I think the movie rests on their shoulders yeah. to carry it off as well as Feig's, uh, I think, uh, great direction. I would agree. I I. I first saw the trailer and I kind of fell in love with the trailer. And then watching the movie, what, what's sort of fun about it, the first time, I, like Marissa, saw it twice within a 24-hour period. <laughs> uh, we saw it the second time together, not the first time. But you go through this experience where you're kind of wondering and you're trying to figure it out. And you don't know the tone quite yet because you're like, okay, there's a lot of humor with what Blake Lively's saying and kind of Anna Kendrick. But there's some deep, dark stuff. And eventually, once you figure out the balance, and you f and you, at this point, if uh, if you haven't tuned out and you haven't seen the movie, spo major spoiler alert: Blake Lively lives. So as soon as that happens, like, oh, okay. And now all of a sudden, I had the most fun once I knew that fact because until that point, I was like, is this going to be a ghost story? What the but hell? But that is, is that? sort of kind of given in the trailer. And unlike you, I really thought the marketing in this movie was awful. I really was. Well, it's hard to market a movie when, when you find out you know there's a big thriller behind it, and when the main character goes missing, and we find out oh hey she she really isn't missing quote unquote. You can't market that because that it, gives away the whole film. It worked in for the marketing in Gone Girl. I, I mean, but also the, that's the, not a comedy either. Yeah, but it doesn't matter. I mean, the well, I don't, I don't want to get into well, the promotion too much quite right. yet yeah, because there's but, there's a whole section um, that, that that we get to talk about. But that. I was just going on your point that yes, I mean, I think that what you were saying about their performances and what it what it does and what it I mean, it's unlike anything that we've seen 
which yeah. makes it fresh and, and makes it good. Uh, I think that tonally, you know, I think tonally it was right where it needed to be. It could have gone one way or the other, which mm. wouldn't have made the movie as fun yeah. as entertaining. And so, and that's a tough, that's a tough balancing act to do. And the very beginning of the movie, you're right. Tonally, it was comedic just from banter and dialogue. And again, you, you can't carry it off without, with poor actors. And Absolutely. So they did it great. So let's take a quick step back, right? Uh, because one of the interesting parts about this entire thing, and yes, it is based off a of book, but at the time that this was all coming together, the book was not in circulation yet. It's not like it was a worldwide bestseller at that point. It's like, okay, you just like with Crazy Rich Asians, let's go, let's go, let's make this book, let's make this book into a movie. It was very much, we like the book, we'll option the rights, mm-hmm. right. and we'll see what we get with both, essentially. Yeah. Uh, turns out people really liked the book, and I, I, critics are really liking this. I don't want to cut too ahead, but I, I am sort of, as far as box office, I will say I'm disappointed that it's not hitting quite the, the way that I would have expected this to, because I think it is quite amazing. But, you know, all, all the things that we've been hinting at as far as the, t- the balance of tone, um, Paul Feig was, was sort of approached by this project. One of the things that he did like was the tone is very middle. It can, if he doesn't balance this right, it goes any which way. Um, and so that's what... And it fails. It fails, yes. You know, if if that happens, mm-hmm. because then people don't really know what the hell they're watching. And, and I know with the audience that I watched it with, they were totally into it because you have that. But if you have a little bit of comedy and then it becomes serious and then dark and then twisty, then people don't know exactly what they're watching. That, I think, when we talk about it more, is the biggest problem they had with the marketing. Because yeah. they didn't know what they were selling, but yet the movie knows exactly what it is and what it's paying homage to. Well, hey, anytime you make Blake Lively sexy in a trailer, <laughs> you've done your job in my How eyes. How hard can that be? <laughs> Listen. But, like, I think they marketed her character well like she is a mysterious woman she's gorgeous but you want to know more about her but you really don't and that's what we get in the trailer and that's also what we learn throughout the film that it's like hey we only see the surface level of this character emily but who is she really so i I think they marketed the mysterious character aspect of you know movies pretty well yeah they well we'll get into it later Uh, marissa speak to the um the writing aspect of it because especially you know, going from book to movie, the third act was a complete shift. Yeah, completely different. I personally have not read the book either, but uh, Jessica Scharzer, who did the screenplay, she changed a lot of different plot points. And if you follow her on, um, there's like a lot of the book differences that we list. But it, uh, a lot of the situations change within the characters, which changes just tonally. The, the book is way more darker than the film is and the film has a more comedic type of ending and wrap out to the mystery compared to the book where it's just straight up drama mystery well the ending not only is it straight up drama mystery spoiler alert for the book emily gets away with it yeah (laughs) she walks away with nikki all happy as a clam yeah and stephanie and sean are the one who gets framed for murder how nice (laughs) karma (laughs) karma really does work but that one of the things you know a lot of people are citing a big difference between the book and the movie is is the use of the narrators and different perspectives i thought 
for my money's worth, this movie showcased everyone's kind of perspective quite well, even Stephanie's. And to be honest, I didn't, by, by the middle, I was like, is she lying? Right. Yeah. And like I actually very much like the narrative because apparently in the book, the narration is more for Stephanie and Sean. It splits between those two. And for a film, it makes more sense. Anna Kendrick is a bigger name, a more recognizable star. People can follow her character, and she's the one who's like unfolding everything between our eyes. And then when it shifts to the second, third act, when we get to Emily's story, it kind of shifts to her perspective and Blake Lively, a very well-known actor as well. So like, it makes sense that for the film narration, it would go to two actors to follow that we're following. Mm-hmm. And Dimitri, you had a you you thought similarly to mine. Yeah, no, I mean it's definitely Stephanie's story. Like we we're seeing it a lot because it opens up with her. It opens up with her her vlog. It ends with her vlog. So and and she is as she aptly says in the movie, she is Nancy Drew. She's trying to put these pieces together as to what happened here. So. I find that the narrative is going through her and through her Nancy drewing it up. You know, she's finding out the keys to these mysteries. And so she's able to say, well, fact, I know that you burn this. You know, I know that you have a twin and I know that you do this. And so that's where we get all this other great exposition. But it's the way that it's laid out because it doesn't feel like exposition. Everything came very naturally. And the... The darkness of it all and the way that it twisted and the way that it built up mystery and intrigue. And again, I'm going, the thing that was simple, at least for me, was when we see the body being taken from the lake, first thing I thought was twin. It's a, it's, it's, it's a grand old magic act. That's what they <laughs> it's do. It's always the twin. You know, it's, it's a twin. Like, so, so we set this up as a twin. It ends up being a twin. But Triplet. it's everything. It, a, so, <laughs> and it... And we just learn from there. So to me, it's a brilliant thing because, you know, whether you figure that out or not, I would say that a lot of people may have figured that out, but then it's figuring the rest of it out. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, all right, I got that. All right, well, who's cheating on who? And everybody's not a great character, but you still are rooting for Anna Kendrick in a way. And, and even to an extent, Blake Lively. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Well, well I, I, the reason why it, it, I start the shift was because, I don't know, maybe just part of me was like, they're, they're, people aren't this nice. People, <laughs> and, you know, from, from that perspective, too, there's there's been enough movies that I've seen where the main character, you know, it, it, it's a device of movies. You only right. see what you're shown. And in this side of it, we're seeing... We're shown Anna Kendrick very specifically, uh, Stephanie Smothers, and not only that, the information that she's saying usually comes from her vlog, which she has an ability to manipulate how she wishes. And so I started. Que- that's why I started questioning that aspect of it all. True, but there was another great technique that was used in this as well, and it's and it's usually a technique that's very cliche, and that is the flashback technique. But in here, it was used to contradict what the character was explaining oh yeah i had a husband and he died in a car crash but then we're showing the we're showing a flashback with her current narration and we the audience see wait no that's not exactly what happened (laughs) like that's not 
that looked like a suicide. Like, what's going on? And the same thing with Blake Lively's character as well. So I really like that juxtapositioning of a narrator telling you a story and then seeing what's act- what actually happened. Uh, so And that was done really well. It was. <laughs> One of the biggest moments this is used is brother fucker. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think of this scene? Uh, well, well, that's the whole telling of the story. Right. But I think it led to, it shows that we spent the first 20 minutes... We spent the first 20 minutes, like, understanding that Stephanie is, like, a seemingly perfect mom. She can do it all. She, like, she has no dark past. And then when we realize, we get more personal with her, she's not perfect either. So as twisted as her storyline is, you're like, okay, you have a dark side too. All right. That makes you more human and that makes you more relatable. I, like, not to say I enjoyed it, but I like that they gave her a storyline that... It played out to be a running joke at the end with the whole brother fucker over and over again because it was said in so many different ways. It still made you laugh. Yeah, from <laughs> the first time it came up, and and it was great because Lively's character knew what we had seen. So obviously, the characters on screen don't get the benefit of a flashback, <laughs> but she was still able to suss it out and go. You're a brother fucker. Brother fucker. And it was just like really fun. Yeah, it was It was a great scene. Um, now, again, we learn more of our characters. And every character here has... They're, they're, they're not perfect people. So it makes me wonder about the rest of the people who are part of the PTA. <laughs> but uh, they, they're... Well, they were smoking weed among right. other things. <laughs> so, I have a they're prescription. They're definitely not perfect. So there's this Norish kind. Well, there's a Norish river running through this little uh, quaint town in what, New England or Connecticut or whatever it was. But I think it adds to the flavor and fun of the movie. It does. I, I I was just more appalled. Like it's one thing to be a brother fucker, but then she can, she's a continued brother fucker. And that's where I was like, oh, boy, you are liking your brother way too much. I get he's your stepbrother, but maybe we should amend it to stepbrother fucker. <laughs> but but brother fucker is more fun to say. Brother fucker. Uh, and, and it was the way that Jake, I mean, Jake, it was the way that Blake Lively said it as well. That, that was, I mean, this is to, like, this is where the two of these actresses or these actors were brilliant. It was in the delivery of their lines. And they could be mean, sarcastic, but it was sarcastic in like almost a playful sense with each other. And that's why I felt that their pairing was brilliant. Yeah, and what I did appreciate was the fact, if, if you look at it from the objective viewpoint, they could have been friends, and they, they essentially were. Uh, all of these things ended up being very circumstantial. You know, she, mm-hmm. she, she took out life insurance... Not to try to get the life insurance, but just trying to actually do the right thing. It wasn't until the insertion of the, the twin, the sister, into her life that things went awry. Right. And as far as that, you know, I, th- I think that's a nice shift because in the book, as I understand it, Emily specifically seeks out Stephanie for this quote-unquote role. Right. And I appreciate that uh, in a different universe, Stephanie and Emily could have been friends. Yeah, and again, some levels you can tell that they bonded as mothers. They bonded as people who don't truly understand them and what they do. On like on some levels, you can understand why they would actually, you know, 
be genuine friends. But I always question, because then I see this running throughout television shows and movies and stuff, is that they're, when you always pair two people together, so soon they already label themselves as best friends. I'm like, are you, though? But are you? They only knew each other for a handful of weeks, and they started calling each other best friends. So, like, I, it was hard to believe that they were best friends yet, but friends enough that the, you can follow them throughout the whole movie. Well, I definitely look. I think the movie has a task ahead of itself from a screenwriting perspective and from direction and, and, and acting. Is that you've got the first act, you've got about twenty minutes to set these two characters up, and you have to make them likable because our next act, when 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 one goes missing and what happens, that's where the things begin to unravel. So I think they succeed. Um, in bringing these two characters together and having an audience like these characters believe that these characters, that these opposites actually attracted and that they begin to open up to one another, right? So that's the bonding. That's the friendship right there. So you do actually believe that there is something there. Even at the end, you still believe that there's something there. Uh, you know, and, so, I, and, and that's important. You know, here's when I look at it, Marissa, you are blessed with many best friends. Am I? <laughs> I think you are. You just don't know. <laughs> Stephanie and Emily literally had no friends. And so, therefore, by definition, when you only have one friend, they are your best friend. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's the, the viewpoint I look at it. Because Stephanie over and over said, like, it's so hard as a mom to be friends with other moms. You know, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, that, that was a fun aspect. But, it, but it's also punctuated by the, you know, by our other characters, Darren right? in particular. Yeah, well, because they're always talking about them being together. So when once they had that first play date with the children, then it became they saw each other very regularly. So much so that everybody else in the small town noticed it as well. And again, within the first twenty minutes, that's all, that all comes out, so that we believe that since this, they really have become close friends. Yeah, you know. I want to cut to the quite opposite, literally the ending of the movie, because <laughs> of something that you said, right? And their their friendship, you buy into it, and the way things are kind of set up for the third act, we're heading into Stephanie and Emily are working together, and it looks like they're going to take down Sean. That does not happen. And I want to get... One of the things that's never revealed is what was the plan of Emily... What was Emily's plan to Stephanie for them to work together, and why did Stephanie not kind of adhere to it? I think if you think about it just from, like, a humanistic character standpoint... Like, Emily would work with anyone just to write her name off that, like, oh, hey, I got away with everything I just did. But once Stephanie did all the research and finding into Emily's life and realized, hey, this person's not a good person either. I'm going to work with her, think that we're going to do something else, but I'm also going to get her as well because she's also, at the end of the day, still a murderer. So it's like you can't let someone get away with murder, even though they're trying to get off on it. Interesting. I okay. see, so I think that was like Stephanie's mindset of why she was working with Emily, but also secretly working against Emily. Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> number one, well, there's the love triangle. Uh, you know, it's it's a 
it's a crazy triangle with a little. Or is bit it a of, square? Or is it an obtuse triangle? Kind of a square. <laughs> square. A TA. <laughs> okay, well, if you want to put in the TA as well. But, I don't want to, you know, but wait, I think no. just the way she comes in. Hi, honey. Uh, yeah, and, or whatever well, she says. Yeah. So handsome. You have a guy who's betraying two women who are friends, and it, the way I viewed it was the initial thing was that um, Emily and and her husband were going to try to get this money, and then things go awry. Husband sleeps with quote-unquote friend but it seemed to be easier that if the two women get together they can easily dispatch of the husband in a way where it doesn't have include murder because the husband always kills the wife always Always. yes so it makes (laughs) more sense it just seemed an easier way but (laughs) it's and that's where i believed i said oh okay i can buy them going off with the four million dollars like that would be, I'd be okay with that. Husband's in jail, right? Mm-hmm. They caught him, but no, no, no. Greed or something usually ends up taking over. And well, but but but, but also, your definition. Oh. I, I just want to clarify. Are you saying that you thought Sean did have a hand in this the entire time, or no? Yes, I think that something was there. Was I mean there was mention that this four million was gonna set us free so i believe that he had a hand in knowing what was going to happen or like what you know in getting this money but you know he and he and stephanie had his tryst but she would have been a patsy because she played it so innocently but we know of her dark side and then her nancy drew qualities um you know she she was like damn it once she found the sister or the twin that was it (laughs) It was yeah. it was over. I want to see the thing with Sean is that I didn't think he fully was well aware of it when it first happened. I mean, we saw him grieve over the loss of Emily, and he was like legitimately grieving. So I was like, okay, he's innocent. But then when he found out that Emily's still alive and she visited him, then he's like, oh, this plan could work out if we just laid low. Eventually, we will get the money. Then he was on board. He was reluctantly on board. So I can't really fault him. In that sense, because he he didn't like concoct the plan. He just eventually went along with. Well, it. he didn't concoct it, but there is a line of dialogue in which Emily says she's fucking this whole thing up for us because she found, you know, she found, you know, she's screwing up, she's taking our money. She's yeah. like she's screwing it up because that's when the insurance got involved. Well, <laughs> and that a, scene was really funny, by the way. It was, <laughs> but but you know, history. <clears throat> Again, how reliable any of this is is debatable, but history sort of dictates that she, that she brings him into situations he doesn't want to be a part of. She stole his mom's wedding, the the, the ring, right? Mm-hmm. And she brings him into a very awkward situation, and he's just stuck. Whether he whether he wants to participate or not, he's in it. He's and in so it, he's kind of learned that just go along with it one way or the other. In this sense, I'm not saying it's the right thing, but... You know, you could see from his perspective, okay, if if this is going to happen, at least we benefit with $4 million. Great. He's easily manipulated by her, too. By her charms. He seems to be easily manipulated by almost anybody's charms, but hers in particular. Well, I want to take a... Is it love or is it lust? That's the thing. I think it was lust, but there was some love there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's... She's like a snake charmer. 
She is. Mm-hmm. And you know what? But don't leave little little innocent Stephanie out of this because mm-hmm. she has a habit of... Not only is she a brother fucker, pardon my French here, but she's a funeral fucker. Yeah. <laughs> this is the second funeral yeah. that she had sex on the pretty much the day of the funeral. Well, at yep. funerals, you're sad and you do stuff to so make you, wanna... you feel better. I'm just saying. Not that I'm advocating it, but it happens. Okay, but but well, you know what I'm She's saying. She's not perfect either. But I'm saying, like we 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 we, mm-hmm. we were just putting this all on the husband as if he's done a horrible right. act. Right. It's Stephanie too yeah. that went along with it. Absolutely. So yeah, she's look. They're all not perfect characters, and again, this is very fine balancing act because characters could have been so vile that you would have hated them. But you really can't point to somebody and say that you hate them, or else this movie doesn't work. You have to like be, you have to buy into the fact that there is some semblance of relationship there that's that means something. Because if they're so awful, then it's just a movie about bad people. But that, that's also like that's a good point because that's why I ask: is it love or is it less? I think Sean and Emily was more lust. Sean and Stephanie was more love because we saw it even at the beginning when Stephanie first met Sean, they immediately bonded over writing and literature and stuff. So, like, there are snippets about these two characters. You can believe that they could be an actually a really good couple together. And so, when Stephanie did get with Sean, like, yeah, I believe it. Like, they have better yeah. chem, they have like some similarities in chemistry there. So, you can understand. And then, when you see Sean and Emily, you're like, why are they together? They really seemingly have nothing. <laughs> In common, therefore, right. I say this last. Yeah. Well, it, it's they, they really are kind of opposite sides of, the, of a coin because Emily, she says what she wants, and she's it's kind of interesting. She never says the truth, but you you you're, you tend to believe her a lot more. Whereas Stephanie looks so sweet and innocent, and it looks like she's being honest. Yet she's half the time never really be that truthful. At the end of the day. So I don't, it, it, they're all just full of lies. They are. They are. And, and, and Everyone's some, deceitful. They're very deceitful. But in, again, in this diabolically entertaining way for us, because number one, when you talk deceit, it's not just dialogue that's deceitful. To me, one of the biggest laughs for me anyways was when Emily comes home and she just rips off her mock turtleneck so to speak she oh, yeah. she rips off her mock collar her mock cuffs she's not even wearing a shirt it's like that's hysterical oh my god because you look at it on screen ah she looks great but everything was terrible she well, was wearing a tear away suit well it also kind of shows she's like again surface level it's, <clears throat> it's all for appearance it's all a facade it's all a facade it's literally symbolism <laughs> that everything's fake in her life mm-hmm yeah, uh, I want I want to kind of uh, something that was funny about Anna Kendrick, and I don't know exactly where to fit it in, so I'm going to shoehorn in here right now. <laughs> uh, one of the things she said, like she did a lot of research with mommy vlogs and whatnot. Some she liked, some she was just horrified with. <laughs> now she didn't state which ones horrified her, but I could probably imagine some. Not not literally, but just just the act of seeing some of these. Right. Right. Anna Kendrick uh, also went on, uh, I believe it was with Sean Myers, no, no, uh, yeah, Steph Myers, uh, that guy. Seth Myers. Seth Myers. Seth Myers. <laughs> that guy. Um, Seth, 
I can't think of his name. Seth Meyers' late night talk show, and she was promoting this film. And she talked about the mommy vlogs, and uh, she said that she was amazed that there are some that are like highly produced but get only little views. So you can tell it's just like for the look, right. for the aesthetic, and they really didn't put a lot of like actual content in. And then the others that are like webcam only quality, but has millions of views because those were like more real because they actually were giving real life situations and advice and stuff so she she, she like bent in death of like you know there are some good mommy vlogs out there and some bad ones and, and the vlogs themselves in this movie also become a tool mm-hmm. right yeah. so so what starts off as being very innocent right oh we're gonna show you how to make zucchini chocolate chip cookies which uh, that just sounds disgusting. No, it sounds but, delicious. Yeah, if you say so. I got robbed of a great zucchini <clears throat> recipe, personally. Yeah, so... What are you talking about? That sounds amazing. Yeah, if you say so. Um, but then it becomes a means of communicating with Emily. <laughs> and and that I find to be very funny. I love you the know? comments that were following. Oh, along. the comments are great. Did you find her? Wishing you well. Yeah. Sending my thoughts. Hope you're great. <laughs> You're such a good friend. Yeah, you're such a good friend. I hope you find her soon. Um, <laughs> speaking of that, speaking of kind of uh, the public image, one of the things that I've seen just kind of online of comments and whatnot is people being like, well, how did, how did the sister find Emily? And I'm like, to me, it's obvious. Let me, let me see if you guys got the same thing I did. But when Sean posted, there, there was mention that Sean posted a family photo on Facebook. Right. And then Emily asked him to take it down. Boom. That, whatever small window of time, you know, call her, call her like, whatever you want, the evil Nancy Drew. But, but the twin found this and then was able to put two and two together. Right. Also, and if you think about it, Emily's job was very public. I mean, she worked in PR. She was the very definition of publicity. So, and but yeah, it was a different name. But everyone goes by different names now. I think with social media and the internet and working a high end job, Emily was easier to find than her sister was. I guess, but she—I don't know. Again, you have to kind of buy that she never had a photo taken. I guess or something right. like that. But and that was a great scene too. <laughs> you just take a picture of me. Yeah, I don't like, and, and again, like the, how she could change, and she goes, "Yep, oh, oh, yep, you're so wrong." And then it comes up later. I'm so sorry about the picture. She goes, "Oh, get over it." <laughs> like that only works when you have chemistry between two really good actors. I'd really like to see them in a movie together again. Yeah, please. please. Uh, speaking of which, I thought that was one of the more funnier running gags. Was the I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Not sorry. sorry. Not sorry. I'm working on it. Gosh, that's a hard one. Yeah. And it helps because it adds to the comedy and it adds the comedic beats throughout dramatic moments in, in the movie. And then especially with with the whole, because we already jumped to it, the arrest at the end and she brings up the I'm sorry again, it still makes it funny. Yeah, it makes it funny. But, and, and it also just... To, to, to the contrast of these two people, oopsie jar, wait, oh, 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 I'm sorry, no, I well, the oopsie jar, and then at the end, the, the name of the book is called The Oopsie Jar. The oopsie jar. And also, the, the kids, I think, played a good job. Yes. Um, especially the Emily's son, uh, Nikki. 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 Um, 
he he's quite the potty mouth too, and you, you can understand where he got that. But I th- I thought yeah. he added a lot. Yeah, I thought they were both really fun. Yeah, and, and to that point, uh, conversely, Stephanie's kid did say "Oopsie Jar" whenever Oopsie Nikki. Jar, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I I thought that was a great moment. Um, so let me ask this: Neither of you thought that perhaps this was going like a weird ghost story. <clears throat> when he brought that up, that moment of like, I saw mom today. Oh yeah, that that was creepy because that was the, probably one of the first beats where the movie actually really goes dark. You're like, oh, creepy, and then I think the music changes too with the tone, and then you're like, that's not right. But that was also just as a general viewer, I was like, she's not dead. You can't kill Blake Lively this early in a movie, no. Yeah, no, I didn't think it was a ghost. And plus, the trailer sort of sets up that this is going to be some semblance of of Diabolique, uh, the movie, and, and, and a Hitchcock thing. And they almost tip their hand that Blake Lively is not dead. Mm-hmm. So, Fair enough. I didn't think it was going to go as a ghost story, but I liked how the characters in the movie almost treated it as such. To me, the great scene was... When she emptied out that entire walk-in closet and then comes home from work or whatever, (laughs) everything's back to exactly where it was. was And then you just know. And then there was a note, too, though, um, I believe. Uh, So, yeah, it was just very well done. Mm -hmm. I like that scene. I thought it was a good scene. I I also liked when uh, Stephanie got stuck in the black dress. Which yeah. is the the poster dress? Right. Yeah, and the 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 cop, the detective, that guy was funny. He was great. He was awesome. Yeah, he was great. And, and again, breadcrumbs, breadcrumbs. Paul, it's it's what being able to do with with women, like outside of Ghostbusters, I'll look at a, a, as a misstep. But here he's working, in a sense, he's working outside of his wheelhouse because he's not working with, say, Melissa McCarthy or these people from Saturday Night Live, comedians, so to speak, right? So we have Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively, and yet he's still able, with the right script, he's still able to craft as a director, you know, the right beats. Because we talk about comedy as being as beat-driven as a suspense movie, and here he gets to blend them both. And 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 in this movie, I think it's really one of his best effort film-wise because he really balanced it well. I I found myself laughing far more than I anticipated in this movie. Um, and it's almost like, what's the Hitchcock movie where they have the guy people Every- kill no, <laughs> people kill a person they put him in a they put him in like a drawer and there's a party and people um uh, that's a lesser-known movie. That, no. I'm not familiar with that one. Just look it up. Dial M for Murder? <laughs> not like, Dial M for Murder. No, no. It's, it's, not, it's not Dial M for Murder. I'm just going to go down Pick every... a Hitchcock movie. Any movie. Uh, I'll find okay. it. You guys Strangers on a Train. I don't think it's that one. Which still has a little bit of humor, but I'll find it. In a, All right. Yeah, I'll find we'll get, it. Let us know. Yeah, g- yeah, g- yeah. Give us a little ding. You got it. <laughs> it's the birds. We knew it. <laughs> it's the birds. No, I get for the birds. <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, so while, while Dimitri's looking that up, uh, then there's, like there's rope. I do want to talk about Henry Golding specifically because um, obviously he's right now as big as he can be. He's in Crazy Rich Asians so much so that they ended up putting him on promotional posters because of that. Now, ironically, the the reason why he's in this movie. 
is quite literally because of Crazy Rich Asians. Mm-hmm. And, well, you you get you tell the story. Yeah, so Paul Figg was, you know, looking for the character, the, the actor to play this character. And his uh, good friend actually um, knew that Henry Golding was casted and was a big fan of the Crazy Rich Asians movie right. and knew that this film was, you know, being filmed. And uh, so... Paul contacted the director of Crazy Rich Asians, be like, hey, is Henry Golden, is he legit, is he good? And the director was like, yeah, totally, he's great, he's he's a great actor, he's very directable. Um, got Paul in contact with Henry via Skype, and then Henry sent in a self-tape, and then they he, that's how he got the part. So from one movie, literally, to the next. Yeah, he is... Killing it. He yeah, is. Good for him. He was really good in this. Too. I mean, again, I think everybody was really good. But he's I, very I, solid as that character. And is when you break it down, he's pretty swarmy. <laughs> right? But still, good good performance. By the way, the, the two movies I'm sort of kind of combining are Rope and The Trouble with Harry. Mm. So those movies have like these comedic elements in a sense of... You know, it's it's people like rope. They kill a person, and then people are coming over for a dinner party, and it's like, well, how are we hiding this person? Uh, trouble with Harry is like, what do we do with this dead body? Mm-hmm. So um, that's where, and of course, Diabolique is 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 referenced even in this movie. So yeah. you know, it's it's this this dark humor, and it's almost Paul Mazursky esque too. So it, it like the dialogue was sharp. It's witty. It's it's unlike anything. That's what else makes it good. It seems fresh today. Yeah. Like you know what? Amongst fresh is that martini? I was fresh. Oh yeah, and boy did I want a martini. Boy did I want a martini, and I probably could have ordered one because I saw it at a dining theater. <laughs> but yeah, mm-hmm. the way she made Missed a martini. Oh, but I wanted I wanted I wanted Blake Lively to make it for me. Yeah, Don't and actually, Blake Lively, because supposedly she doesn't really drink in real life, which is, you know, okay, okay good for you. And uh, But she because she's such a great actress and stuff, she was talking to Paul, Paul Fig. She's like, no, I need to really know how to make a legit martini and make it look like I know how to make them. So she, she practiced with Paul, and, and he he's the one who actually introduced her to the London martini. Like, huh, interesting. Well, she made them, he drank them. That's right, yeah. and she's also, she's also the type of person that would participate in the oopsie jar. As soon as they called cut, she would not swear it. They they say action, shit, fuck, motherfucker. <laughs> you know, um, so she went for it. She did. I'm, I'm really glad. All right, well, uh, why don't we start shifting gears into the production aspects of of things, which I know we've kind of been slightly talking about it, but. Um, but now really zoning in on it. First off, it was filmed in Canada. So Canada for L.A. Which <laughs> I guess it worked. Um, and I, I really like the way everything looked. I, I mean, uh, I don't know. Part of it, I, I love Bible Camp. <laughs> Bible Camp yeah. was, yeah. Great. And, Not that I want to go to that Bible Camp, but... And again, the proprietors of Bible Camp were just hysterical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was really funny. So, yeah, Bible Camp was really cool. It, the entire thing, it, it looked as if it were a Connecticut or New Englandish kind of town. Um, and, and again, from that kind of suburbia, 
it lends itself to having this dark thing. Well, we saw Suburbicon tried. See, <laughs> Suburbicon tried to sort of kind of be like this. And it couldn't tell it was going on in Suburbicon. Yeah. But we, we definitely got the, the different aspects because I felt like this movie was more about the characters than really <clears throat> um, anything. And we, we had to follow them. And the houses for each, you know, Emily's house and Stephanie's house completely showed the personalities as well. Emily's house was big and tall and lush and open, open spaces, spaces which created a lot of voids. It was actually it was helpful for the shooting, for the cameras, mm-hmm. so they can actually they actually had legit space to move around. And then uh, Stephanie's house was brighter, colorful, more cheery, because she is a cheery person. So definitely different, and uh, there, there were more, like, yellow tones in Stephanie's house. So it physically and visually gave you, like, a better understanding of these characters. Yeah, I mean, it, just even it, the socks themselves. Yeah, the socks, those blue socks. <laughs> From Target. $10. And for $10. So also, though, we have to, like, the, the cinematography of this movie, I thought, again, it lends to this very well in John Schwartzman. Uh, the funny thing is, is that um, John Schwartzman and, and V were, were classmates and friends, and this is the first time mm-hmm. they actually got to collaborate together. And... He was Schwartzman latched on to movies like Blue Velvet as a guidepost. Uh, I'm glad he didn't go really too far down that rabbit hole because this would have been a different movie. Um, and it was brightly lit, poppy colors of that film, and he used that as his inspiration. And he didn't want to hide things in the shadows uh, too much. And let's put it all out there in plain sight and let the audience figure out all the information, mm. which is what this movie really does. For us. So so I found that to be interesting. They they uh they had a brand new medium format Panavision DXL camera was used with yep. Panavision Primo seventy millimeter lens. Um in Schwartzman aimed for immediacy, dropping the audience right into Stephanie's confusion, um, which we get. And Again, when you take the innocence of Stephanie and not knowing how dark she that character is going to get and can get and is, like I find that very I find that just fascinating. And looking at her vlogs, that's another thing too, especially coming off of watching a movie searching, <clears throat> right? Where this movie was based on social media vlogging in a sense, right? Yeah, that film. And again, a, a fantastic mystery. Um, and 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 uh, this movie here, a simple favor uses it. I mean, it's not we're not seeing it all through social it's social media. It's it. not dependent on it, but it plays a major character on it. The vlog is a tool, and it looked really the way that it was shot and filmed. It looked as real as can be. I like that it had the buffering too. Yes, Those yes. Ones, like <laughs> yeah, that's real. That's real. And she played with it. The fact of. You know, her performance of staying close, then zooming out. Here's what we're doing. We're making friendship bracelets and this and that. And you almost feel as if you were a follower. Mm -hmm. Like, if you were watching her vlog on an extremely big screen. Yeah. And what's so brilliant about it is the commentary on all of it, all the styles. Uh, You know, Darren in particular is kind of the voice of, of... the cynic, if you will, you know, having seen murder cases, like if they don't find the body in 72 hours, she's dead. Right. Or, uh, yeah, you know, we started watching your vlog for fun, but 
and you got some good stuff. Yeah. Are those my brownies? <laughs> that, that's what it, yeah, it was yeah, the brownies. So I, I think what, what's great about it is using the elements, whether it be the cinematography, the sound, and all that, even, even the editing to a degree, uh, and going one way with it, but then having this other aspect of it that contradicts what what's being shown. Right. And I and I, I think that's where again the balancing act really Much like the narration. <laughs> yes indeed. Um so that's what I liked about it. Marissa, speak to the costumes, if you will. Yeah, so the the actual wardrobes is actually a pretty fascinating take. So we know that Stephanie's in the the brighter, cheerful, fuzzy sweaters and stuff. So that that was more to pop out her her personality. But also Blake Lively's character, they they based her actually on Paul Fig <laughs> because Paul is actually known every time he's directing, he's always in a suit. Always in like a three-piece suit. He's dressed to the nines because he, he's a very fashionable guy. And um, they wanted Emily to kind of mirror that look because it still showed that she's um, beautiful but also uh, mysterious at the same time and powerful <clears throat> at the same time. So they gave her like suits to to wear and she rocked them. And, I mean, and... Uh, she did. Yeah, and yeah, as I'm looking through the notes, we we had uh, they modeled the, the suits all on the 30s and 40s, like Catherine Hepburn, Lauren Bacall, like powerful women. They're awesome. And they all were, of those, they but were huge all, they in all were in noir movies. Yeah, noir as movies. Kelfis, well. um, which is uh, Re- Renee Elric Kelfis, who was the costume designer in the, in the wardrobe. And uh, it was her and Lively's idea to apply this to Emily's character. Mm-hmm. Pretty neat. Yeah, and just going back to your thing regarding Paul Feig, it's more than fashionable. It is, it, it is the way directors used to show up uh, when directing a movie. They would show up as if it were a professional. They were the leader of a company. So it's it was never uncommon that people like Hitchcock and stuff would wear come in in suit and a tie. Uh, Sam Raimi <clears throat> has has Nolan does it up. too. Yeah, so they they show up dressed properly because that's it's just a history of directing. When you see that coming up, that's what they're comfortable in. It's an homage. That's how they were brought up. I think it's really cool. That people if you can al- if you can do it, I, I look at movie directing as like almost going to war, <laughs> especially be. on the on sure. the indie level. And so you know, I, for me, you need you need combat boots, not a suit. <laughs> but it, that's my different viewpoint. You know, it's it's a director. You know, it's just being the director. You you have to look as if you can take charge, and it's and it's paying homage to to that tradition of what it is. I have to show to my my crew cast and crew they can be comfortable but i have to be the guy that leads them and and it's it's a way you know steve martin had always said always look better than your audience that's why he always showed up in a white suit and such it's not it's not a dissimilar takeaway from how directors used to dress and how some continue today when they show up on set but you're right some go for more comfort because you're right, I'm in a war. I have to think quick. Like, who wants to wear a suit in a 100-degree temperature? Right. A lot of yeah. people wouldn't. But, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the suits, they wanted to make Emily look powerful and intimidating. And she did. And, and, yeah, she definitely did. But also to show that the character is, like, she's she literally hides herself also in her clothing. Yeah, and, 
if I want to symbolic to yeah, that and well. I want to point out to this poster right here because to me anyways the way the way I looked at it was it was the paradigm shift mm -hmm. it was Blake Lively dressing as maybe Anna Kendrick would in the... In For those that are listening on audio, it's the more standard the, poster, but it's the dress that, <clears throat> that Emily wears at the end. It's the bluish, 50-ish kind of dress that she's wearing that you would think uh, Stephanie would wear. Mm -hmm. and, then, um, and then she's wearing that black dress she gets stuck in. So Interesting. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I liked uh, it. All right. Yeah, I liked it too. So, all right. Um, let's round out with box office numbers because this is where it kind of deteriorates. Uh, now, on the Rotten Tomatoes side of things, 83%. Not too bad. Not, you know, I would have expected perhaps a little higher. Cinema score is B. Plus, but, um, but worldwide box office as of today, uh, let's say, let's round up. Let's be generous. 25 million. It came in third behind the nun and the predator. I'm very disappointed by this fact. Yeah, I'm I'm disappointed too, but I'm also not surprised because nun is horror. Horror always does well. Predator is action gory. Action generally does well too. And when you mix those together, you like this is definitely counter programming to those two movies that came out. It is, but I go back to the marketing. The marketing just they did not know what the marketers didn't know what they had as a movie. As as regard like they got really good reviews, right? Um, a B plus, I believe, on Cinema Score. Mm -hmm. So audiences that went liked it uh, to a very well, ex to a very good extent. But it again, the marketing didn't tell you what this movie is. It a comedy? Is it a mystery? What am I watching here? They said this is Paul Vig, and you're usually used to watching him do. These broad comedies like Bridesmaids or Spy. I think one trailer and, said the darker side of Paul Feig. Yeah, and and it's it, it was a mixed bag. Um, I like the print, but the print doesn't really sell. Like the print ads were fine. It doesn't sell what the movie is. They didn't know what they had, and it is too bad. It's unfortunate. Audiences, I, the audience I saw with really enjoyed it. It got some like decent mm -hmm. applause at the end. People were engaged watching this movie uh it is bad because it's too bad because it is fresh it's something different and it pays wonderful homage to certain french films and hitchcock and it's got it all that people really would get into no. it's right. too bad I, I think the thing is they were also banking on the star <clears throat> fact and the stardom of blake lively and Anne kendrick together if you actually follow them because i do on Twitter and social, like any social media platforms together, they have like over 50 million, like anywhere from 30 to 50 million. They have a large, devoted audience. So, like, I think they were also selling it just on the fact of these two are together. They're in a movie. We don't know what the movie's about, but watch it because those two are in it. Well, I, th that's what they got me on. To, to, to sort of put a. To, to wrap it up in this perspective, I mean, I can't say with 100% certainty, but. Uh, Paul Feig really wanted it to not be advertised as a comedy. Now, I don't know how much of a hand he had as far as the direction. Uh, I can't entirely say. Y you are correct. Blake Lively did put do a very interesting thing um, where she deleted pretty much her entire Instagram account, followed only Emily's. Um, and in, in that sense, now, there, there's great articles out there. She's like, I didn't actually delete my account. Like, she all the photos them. are there, yeah. blah, blah, blah. She hid them. But, With but Instagram's. 
Um, and finally, uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting as far as the Instagram accounts because they, they put out interesting kind of promos of it's not what you think and, and whatnot. So there's that. Um, and, at the you know, I, I wish the – I thought from a marketing perspective I was satisfied. It doesn't seem like you guys are satisfied. But anyway – there you have it. Thank you guys as always. We appreciate you. Um, later today we will we will be doing the Predator, um, and then next week we will be doing White Boy Rick and the house with the wall and the clock and the something the or other. The house with the clock and its walls. walls. <laughs> okay, that just one. be very careful in how you say it. It's not something you want to say ten times fast because it'll sound like a movie that we don't really cover here. <laughs> Fair at Serafini TV for Marissa. That's right. At DMovie1701 for Dimitri. Yes. I'm at Phil Svitek. We'll see you next time. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of its owners or principals.